Why don't we do this? Open up your Bible, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3 is where we're at. Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. The main topic that we'll be taking a look at here today has to do with Jesus' family. And uh, really the question that kind of gets raised in the passage that Mark addresses for us or speaks to us is really who belongs to Jesus? Who is his family? What does his family look like? Family is an important thing. Family is something that most of us uh, have just kind of gotten over with over this past holiday. Some of us might even still have family living here. Uh, some of us have great families. We enjoy hanging out with our families. We find a lot of uh, uh, fun and enjoyment hanging out with them. For others of us, it's very difficult because it's very dysfunctional. We need a lot of prayer with regard to our family because we don't know how to deal with our family. And uh, what we're going to take a look at here today is that Jesus actually defines uh, for his audience who actually is his own family. So hopefully this will make some sense to us. And I want to read the passage, and then we'll begin to take a look at what Mark has to say to us uh, with regard to this whole thing. So uh, Mark chapter 3, I'm going to pick it up at around verse 31, and then go down to the very end of the chapter. It says this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him, and they called him. And then the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Um, in another account of this very same story in the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually adds one particular word that Mark, for some reason, does not actually add. And here's what Luke says. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So what Mark wants us to really understand that Jesus is speaking about is he has a very direct sense of who his family is. Now, there's two major elements within Judaism that Jews would have looked at and kind of valued as sort of being earmarks of who they are. They're identity markers. Uh, at least two of them. Um, I mean, you can throw in a handful of other ones as well, but two major ones that would really identify Jews. Like Jews, if you were to ask them, what makes you Jews? What is it unique about you guys that's different than other people? And I think at least two of them, they would say the temple. We have the temple. We have a place where God shows up. God meets us. It's in Jerusalem. And then they would also kind of point back at some point to Abraham. In other words, family, their lineage. They recognize they would trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. You know, we sing that song, Father Abraham has many sons. I will not sing it for you. But, you know, get the point. That, in a lot of ways, that's the idea, that they place a lot of value upon the fact that they were sons and daughters of Abraham. That Abraham was sort of this, uh, this, this depiction of what it meant to live faithfully before God. And all those who were part of Abraham's lineage... At least they felt in the idea, in their mindset, that by being part of the lineage of Abraham, they too were also those that were following faithfully to God, following faithfully uh, to the relationship of God, following faithfully uh, with accordance to the Torah, following faithfully by being circumcised, and so on and so forth. Those are the two major markers within Judaism. And what we're going to find throughout the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus actually, to some degree, begins to tear down each of these two major markers in Judaism, or at least redefines them around himself. First, he begins to talk about the temple. And we saw that already, that Jesus is not necessarily saying the temple is evil or wicked, because Jesus himself was the one that gave the order to build the temple. There's nothing evil about the temple. But what Jesus is trying to say is that I have come to replace the temple. You don't need to go to the temple anymore 
to have your sins forgiven. You come to me to have your sins forgiven. You don't need to go to the temple anymore to be cleansed from your defilement. You go to me, and I will cleanse you from your defilement. That was the idea. You don't need to go to the temple anymore to find God. You go to me, and I'll reveal God to you. That was what Jesus was saying. He's redefining the temple around himself. But he's also going to be doing the same thing with regard to family. In other words, by being born in the family of Abraham doesn't make you a son or a daughter of God. The way that you consider me makes you a son or daughter of God. How you think about me, how you understand me, how you worship me, how you love me, how the affections of your heart are rightly geared and directed towards me, that will define whether or not you truly actually belong to God's family. So this is really what's going on. And in some way, I think if you were to read the story, just kind of a cursory perspective, you would almost think that maybe Jesus was being a little bit rude. I mean, think about it this way. If your mom called you up and says, I want to hang out with my son, and your son's kind of like, you're not in my day planner. You're not on my books. I, you're not in my calendar. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm so busy. I don't have time to hang out with my mom. But after all, who are my mom and who are my brothers anyhow? That's kind of what he's saying. So in some ways, you can misinterpret this, I think, because that's not the point, that Jesus is not being very nice to his mom and his brothers. But really what he's doing is he's basically trying to say to his hearers that true family goes far deeper than just simply blood. That's the whole point. That it's not just simply the marks of circumcision that make you into God's family. It's not because you belong to a particular religion that declares you as God's family. It's not because you've been birthed into a particular denomination that makes you one part of God's family or God's family as a whole or in totality. But what determines whether or not you're a part of God's family is what you do with Jesus. And this has radical implications upon everything else within and beyond our life. So what I want to do real quick is I want to just kind of get a little bit of a definition as to what family is. It's not a political statement, but this basically just straight out of the mouth of Webster. So let Webster speak. Next slide. Uh, take a look at this little definition as to what Webster has to say family is. And I think there's some insightful things in here. Basically, four specific things that would identify or define family. All right, some of them might be pretty obvious to you guys, but it basically goes like this. A group of individuals living under one roof or under one head. That's the most important one. The second one is a group of persons of, commune, of common ancestry. Clan, tribe, you get the idea. Third is a group of people united by certain convictions or common affiliation. We call this like a fellowship, a group of people that, you know, you have a cause you're passionate about, I have a cause I'm passionate about, let's do this together, let's unite, let's link up, let's have a fellowship with each other. Fourthly, a group of things that are related by common characteristics, it would be like elements, uh, chemicals, plants, things like that, uh, foliage, different things that would sort of be united within some sort of, maybe even a biological type of a family. So, the Jews, what I think was going on within the particular passage here, is that they would look at it and say, we have common ancestry. So they would take basically three of these four and identify with them. They would look at them and say, common ancestry, check. Sons and daughters of Abraham. All right? Common convictions, check. We keep the Sabbath. We live according to the Torah. We follow all the dictates of God and all the rabbis and all the teachers and the scribes and the Pharisees and they would look at it and say common characteristics check we wear the same hats wear the same robes robes carry the same Bibles we would quote the same verses we have the same common convictions about family about circumcision about all these other things 
But the real most important one is really what Jesus is trying to say is that a true son or daughter is one that has the same family head. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's redefining Israel. This is super important. This is, this is the whole point that Mark is trying to state here. Because what Mark has done from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark is to identify that there's a new king. There's a king that's come on to the world stage. His name is Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. Like I told you from the very beginning that anytime you read the word Christ, Christos, Mashiach, the word Messiah, literally means king. So the way that the Jews would have read that word Christos or Christ, they would have automatically interpreted that in their mind as being a king. So here's what Mark is trying to say, that God has appointed a king. His name is Jesus or Yeshua. He's come into this world. He is God's king, come to set up a new domain, or we would call it a kingdom. And he's working, he's moving, he's doing phenomenal things. And one of the signs that this king has come to radically move and radically change the way that this former kingdom that hasn't worked, planet Earth, is not taking care of the people, the inhabitants of planet Earth. In fact, the former kingdom has left the inhabitants of Earth destroyed, broken, defiled, sin-filled, full of covetousness, right? Isn't that kind of what happens on this planet Earth? It's that, that type of kingdom that we would look at and say, we love this place. Because we look around this world, and even though there's beauty, there's lots of pain, right? That's the world we live in. You don't believe me? Watch the news for five minutes. That's what happens. It's one of the reasons why at the end of every segment of news, at least on the local channels, they end with some story of an animal getting saved or rescued. Because they just want you to feel good about at the end of this whole news segment of feeling really bad. You're like, this world stinks. But you know what? They saved a horse out of a ditch. It can't be all bad. That's just the way this world works. We know it's bad. It's because it's under a bad kingdom. But what Mark is saying is that a new king has showed up. He's rescuing the inhabitants of this earth. He's starting a new family, a new Israel that's centered around himself. He's the new king, and he's calling people to come follow him. And the old markers, the old boundary, boundary lines that marked off the people of Israel, the former boundary marks, they don't apply anymore. They're different. That's what Jesus is trying to say. That's what Mark is trying to inform us, that there's a new kingdom advancing, and it's all centered around Jesus. And this is very important. And so what Jesus is really trying to convey and communicate to his followers is that if you claim to love God, but you don't love God's Son, then you're not part of His family. Because the whole family is linked, connected to the King. That's what Jesus is trying to convey. That's what the Gospel teller, Mark, is trying to convey to us, is that this whole kingdom is, is inseparably linked to Jesus Himself. This is why Jesus is central. We can't just simply have religion, or we can't just simply have spirituality, we can't just simply have some sort of means of you know, reading your Bible, and Jesus isn't that, isn't that really important, we can just kind of take Jesus or leave Jesus. Jesus is absolutely essential. This is what he's trying to say. This is why Jesus would say, at least in Luke, my family, my mother, my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So, 
What I want to begin to take a look at here is really two specific things, and we'll wrap it up. The first of which is the importance of hearing and doing. The importance of hearing and doing. The second thing we'll take a look at is the implications of hearing and doing. But let's first of all take a look at the importance of hearing and doing. All right. In fact, these could be the two most important, most significant words in your entire life. They really are. Because really what Jesus is trying to convey and say to us is that what family you belong to are completely linked to how you hear and how you do. How you hear and how you do. Here's what Jesus is going to say. My father, I'm sorry, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God. There's other places where Jesus is going to say, be careful how you hear. Next week, next Sunday, my good friend Ben Potter is actually going to be teaching uh, the very large passage of Scripture, around 20 verses in chapter 4, on the parable of the sower. All right, um, I'm going to actually be gone, so you guys are going to be really blessed to hear this message. But really, the whole parable is all about how you hear. I mean, at the end of the day, the concept of the soil is really how you pay attention, how you hear, how you listen. So the point of the matter is this, is that everything involves your ability, your capacity, your propensity to hear. I mean, we live in a very unique culture where we have all sorts of means by which we communicate. We have cell phones, we have Facebook, we have IM, we have texting. We have all sorts of means to communicate, which means I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'll post my thoughts about what's going on in my mind on my Facebook page or on my Twitter account so that you can know what's going on in my mind. But rarely do we ever, find our, ever really kind of find ourselves slowing down to listen to other people, to pay attention, to hear what's really going on. So, so for some of us, we don't do this very well. When it comes to God, we don't do this very well. It's one of the reasons why I think, for the most part, it's good sometimes to pull away from all of our little devices, pull away from cell phones, to pull away from Facebook, to pull away from Twitter, to pull away from television, to pull away from 124 channels, to pull away from all sorts of technological stuff just so that you can hear, listen, pay attention. The idea of hearing is not just simply allowing something to fall upon your ears, but it's the idea that goes hand in hand with perception. So you hear and then you perceive. And that ultimately leads to an action. I'll give an example of this. If, say for example, you're at home and you are at home and say you have a sibling that's in the other room and you hear something break and then you hear feet step, footsteps kind of running around, picking stuff up. Now, you heard something and you perceived. What you thought was my sister, my brother broke a glass. Depending upon the type of person you are, you will either A, go and help because that's the type of person you are, or you will be like, huh, I didn't hear that. And uh, you'll just go on ignoring it because you don't want to get up and go help them. That's, that's fine, whatever the case is. But my point is that you heard, you perceived, and whatever it was that you heard and perceived, you acted accordingly, whether by action or inaction. Does that make sense? So let's say it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you know that you're home by yourself and you hear something break, and the same pitter-patter of footsteps, but you know that you're home alone. No one is home. Your hearing, your perceiving will lead to a radically different action, right? What happens if 2 o'clock in the morning you hear something break, and you hear footsteps moving around, and you yawn, turn over in bed, go back to sleep? You are a fool. You are a fool. You've done nothing. 
which actually implies either A, you're just simply not very smart or bright, or you really didn't perceive. You may have heard, but you didn't really perceive that there's a threat, there's a danger. Call 911, get a bat, do something to just somehow at least protect yourself, hide, whatever. What Jesus is trying to say is that those who hear my word and perceive and do, my two brothers, my two family members, how well are you at hearing and perceiving? Because for some of you, you can hear God's word, and you hear it a lot, some of you. You've been Christians for a long time. You've memorized large pa- passages, large portions of the Bible. Maybe you've memorized large doctrinal concepts and ideas. You hear or you think you hear well, but in reality, there's not a lot of doing. There's not a lot of action. There's not a lot of true life change or transformation. Jesus says everything in our life really boils down to how well do you hear? This is, like, I I can't even press this enough of how important this is, of how significant this is. That hearing is absolutely central to our understanding, to our acceptance, to our response to the gospel. But then Jesus goes on to say, he says, those who hear the word of God and do it really are my mother and my brothers. So again, this leads into action. So hearing through perception and then into action, all stem out of or grow out of identity. So who you are is going to be identified not by how good you hear. So you can be somebody that's like, oh, I love hearing the Bible. I love hearing good things. I love hearing good teaching. But you don't do it. Are you a Christian? Either you're not or you claim to be, but you're really not. Or you are a young Christian, but a very, very young, baby, immature Christian. You need to grow up. And that's fine if you're a brand new Christian. That's not fine if you're a 25-year-old Christian. You've got to do. There comes some point where you actually have to act. You have to be a part of the family. You have to do something. You have to live the gospel. You have to demonstrate it. You cannot just simply sit back and not do anything, not live the gospel, not demonstrate it in your life. You can't just simply keep going back and pointing to that and saying, I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because I hear the Bible. Because I listen to sermons. Because I go to a particular church. Or because I'm part of a particular tribe. Or part of a particular denomination. Or part of a particular thing. What Jesus would say, that's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious people in the first century did. As they said, Abraham's our dad. Jesus says, no, but you don't get it. The true family that belongs to my father are those that hear and do what I tell them. Like, how good do you hear? How good do you do? This is really essential. In fact, I would go so far as to say that these are probably the two of the most important words in your life today, or should be, if they're not. How well do you hear? How well do you do? Those are going to reflect upon, ultimately, who you really are, what your identity is. So if you claim identity as a child of God, but you don't hear and you don't do, then you may need to repent. You may need to just simply come to grips with the fact that you've maybe been brought up in a Christian church, or you've been surrounded by a Christian community, or you've just been part of a group of people that claim to be Christians, but you're not one of them. You're really not truly one of them. 
That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. And I think it's a very important one. I think it's one that we don't want to miss or take lightly. What I want to begin to take a look at now is kind of wrap this up, is look at some implications of what hearing and doing are all about. This is where, really where I want to get some very practical notions with regard to this. Because if in reality, Jesus is going to say that your identity will ultimately lead to how you hear, perceive, and do, what does it mean to actually be part of this family? And this is kind of interesting because even though in the context of this particular story of Mark, he doesn't really kind of elaborate on a lot of the things I'm going to talk about right now. A lot of the things I'm going to talk about right now are kind of more practical. They take place in all throughout other portions of the Bible. See, basically what happened was this. When the New Testament was written or when the story of Jesus was unfolding before their eyes in the first century, what you had were people that would basically chronicle the life of Jesus. That's what we're looking at here right now. We call these Gospels. And this is basically the storyline or the narrative of the life of Jesus. And what had happened was they began to look at this and say, okay, since Jesus lived and since Jesus is God and since Jesus is the king and since Jesus forgave and since Jesus called people to himself, people, a bunch of random people, people that were Jews, people that were not Jews, people that were righteous, people that were just straight up sinners, all sorts of people, since Jesus did this in his life and then ultimately died and rose again, what does this mean for us as humanity? And the answer to that big question, or questions, gets unpacked through what we call the epistles. Like Paul the Apostle works this out. And that's what you'll find like in the book of Ephesians and Romans and Galatians and Philippians and all of these other passages. And even Peter writes about these things and Jude and so on and so forth. Like how does the gospel work itself out in our lives? In other words, since Jesus came, since the storyline of Jesus is true and it all happened... How does this work its way out in a very practical sense in our lives? So that's mainly what I want to try to finish up on here is take a look at a a handful of items that are very practical when it comes to just simply family line. So the implications of hearing and doing ultimately is going to really boil down to this. I had written here, since one's identity leads to proper hearing and doing, obedience, then what does this mean for me within the broader family of God? I basically have four different things that I want to finish up with and just kind of chew on and think about the first thing is it has to do with is this. It means that independence and racism or sectarianism has to go. It has to go. This is exactly what I think Mark's trying to say. Is Mark, as he's communicating the message of Jesus, is this. Is that just because you have the sign of circumcision in your flesh, meaning you're a Jew, it doesn't make you any better than an uncircumcised person. Because this is the message, the unfolding message of the church. In the book of Acts, you see this really takes shape. Because who does the gospel end up going to? Non-Jews. This is amazing. This is absolutely mind-blowing. Because what happened were the Jews thought in their mind that the gospel, or that God came, and he was going to set up a kingdom for them. Why? Because they're sons and daughters of Abraham. That they're unique. They're special. The chosen people of God. The idea is that God's chosen us, therefore we are different, we're unique, and that oftentimes sort of degraded itself down into sort of this staunch sectarianism, tribalism of we're better than the Gentiles. We're better than non-Jews. We're better than those who, you know, eat pork for dinner. We don't eat pork. Why? Because God told us not to and we don't eat pork. You know, we circumcise our kids. They do nothing. That's the idea. And the whole story, for example, in the book of Galatians is about what are the boundary lines? What really defines somebody as part of God's family? Paul's whole message is 
it's not whether or not you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It's whether or not do you hear and obey the Son. It's the same message. So this basically means is that sectarianism and tribalism and the whole idea of independence cannot survive. I'll first tackle the concept of independence. We live in a world today that's very independent, all right? Um, in a lot of ways, we have this mentality, and I hear it all the time, of, you know, um, I have my own personal relationship with Jesus, and I don't need to be a part of a church, I don't need to be a part of a community, I don't need to be a part of anything, I can just go pray, I can hang out with Jesus, I can do what I want to do, and I don't really need to be a part of anything. Let me just tell you something really clearly, as clearly as I can, that's satanic. It's just straight up satanic. It has no place whatsoever in the gospel. It's not of God. It's not even spiritual. You think it's spiritual. It's not spiritual. It is not godly. In fact, it's totally satanic. Satan operates as an independent agency, as an independent operator, seeking his own good pleasure, his own good purposes in life, not anybody else's. He's not working as a democracy. He's not hanging out with a bunch of other arch demons and being like, what shall we do today? Let's take a vote on it. Who shall we tempt? You know, what new despot should we raise up in some weird, strange part of the world with funky glasses on? Like, what should we do next? That's not how Satan works. Works as an independent operator seeking to do what he wants to do. Independence has this mentality that just says, I will do what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it, where I want to do it, and I will ultimately be the judge, the rule maker, and the jury all in one. I'll make my own decisions. I will act the way that I want to act. I will do what I want to do. And let me just simply say this. I see this most often prevalent in men. I see this most often prevalent in men. This is one of the reasons why oftentimes women are the ones that come to church, men don't. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, there's a lot of studies, you know, people say, well, men don't come to church because the music is too, like, feminine. Whatever, maybe it is. But I think there may be even more underlying problems. Maybe men are arrogant. Maybe men want to be independent. Maybe men don't want to submit to authority. Maybe men want to be an authority under themselves and have no other authority over them, including God. If you're part of a family... Well, you're actually starting from the very baseline of saying, I'm under his authority. He's my authority. I submit to him. I'm below him. He's my God. He's my father. He's my head. He's my family head. He has all authority over me. He can tell me what he wants to do. He can direct me. He can lead me. And the way that he will lead you is he will lead you this to be a part of the whole family. Independence is not godly. It's satanic. The second thing that I want to talk about is this, is the whole idea of racism and sectarianism. That these, both of these things have to go. Both are kind of extremes. The one extreme, like I said, is independence. It's all the way over here. It's where you are the center of everything. Everything revolves around you. And you are ultimately the one who's making all the decisions in and of yourself. On the other end is sort of this kind of tribalism. And basically racism, if you haven't ever kind of studied this or thought about this, but really racism, what it boils out of and what it comes down to is sort of a, an, uh, an idolatry of race. Meaning you look at your group of people, your tribe, your, your sect, and you say, we are the best sect. We are the best race. That's what Hitler did. He said, Aryans are the best. 
We need to populate the world with Aryans. They are the best. And any other type of race is actually a subordinate race to the Aryan race. And so, therefore, we will try to eliminate uh, any other race, at least within our own country or in the other borders that we have taken over and occupied, and we will expand the Aryan race because our race is the best. It's actually an idolatry of a race. But the same idea carries over into all sorts of other things. For example, denominations. So if you're part of a denomination, part of a group of people, part of a tribe, part of kind of a, a sect where you're united underneath the head, and that head is not Jesus, if that head is a gifted teacher, you're in danger. If you look at that gifted teacher, now let me just say this. We believe the Bible is infallible, not the teacher's. If you're the type of person that keeps aligning yourself under one particular teacher, oh, well, this is what so-and-so says. This is what so-and-so does. This is what so-and-so has mentioned in the past. We have to follow that. You're in danger of that. If that's the only guy or only person you ever listen to, only person you ever watch, only person you ever download sermons on, only person you ever read, you're in danger of elevating that person and then somehow becoming tribalistic, meaning you will build little tribes, little groups of people around that particular person or around that particular movement and what will end up happening is you will look at any other movement as being subordinate see this all the time i mean i got saved in a church that that's exactly the way it's become it's very tribalistic i've sat at pastors conferences around dinner tables where every guy is sitting here talking about every other pastor in his city and how this guy's bad because he doesn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, or this guy's all messed up because he doesn't have this view of the rapture, or this guy's messed up because, you know, his worship is too long, or this guy's messed up because he uses this translation of the Bible. It's absolutely demonic. It's tribalism. It's sectarianism. It's sinful. It's wrong. It's not to be rejoiced in. It's to be repented of. And when you recognize that Jesus is the head of this new family, and we're called to hear and obey him, we realize that even the very faith that we have to believe is a gift from God. Where's boasting? Like, who can be like, I'm a Christian because? Because God gave you faith to believe. That should humble you. Not make you arrogant, not make you prideful. If you're like, I'm a Christian because I belong to this church. No, you're a Christian because Jesus graciously accepted you. You have no rights except those ones that God's given you. So that removes boasting. That removes sectarianism. That removes the mentality of independence. It removes all that because you're part of a family in which God has initiated the second thing that I want to take a look at here is it means not only, first of all, that independence, racism, sectarianism must go, but also means, secondly, that uh, you don't get to choose who your family members are. God does. This is kind of an interesting one because, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. I mean, we, I mean most of us, I would imagine, are part of a family, and most of us kind of look at our family members and think, if I had the choice... I wouldn't have chose certain brothers and sisters to be my brothers and sisters. Or I wouldn't have chosen, you know, my mom, all right? Or I wouldn't have chosen grandma, like, or drunk Uncle Ed. You know, I wouldn't have chosen him to be part of the family, all right? The reality is, is in God's family, you don't get to choose. And to some degree, that's kind of hard for some of us because we look at that and we're like, ah, that's a bummer. Like, and we kind of live with that mentality. It's one of the reasons why I'll even kind of go so far as to say some of us 
you know, you, you jump from church to church to church to church because you're trying to choose. You're trying to find some group that's just like you. It's really what you're actually looking for. You're looking for people that are like you, that share your commonalities, that share your passions, that share your desires. Do you know that when you're born into a family, you don't choose? There's all sorts of conflicting opinions and ideas and concepts about how to do stuff and how to wear your clothes and how to comb your hair and, you know, how cookies should be baked and how the dinner table should be set and how and who should have what pecking order when it comes to eating. There's all, and how, you know, the, the toilet paper should be on the rat thing out or in, or should a toilet seat be up or down, or toothpaste cap on or off. There's all sorts of differing opinions, and we don't get to choose our family members. That's just the way it is with God's family. God chooses them. The third one kind of leads into that as well. It means also that this family will be very dysfunctional, very messy. Because think about it this way. Throughout Jesus' ministry, who were the people that were most ambitious about coming out of the woodwork and coming in. They were prostitutes. They were sinners. They were the people that were marginalized, people on the, literally just way off in the distance. They were not part of any real social group. They weren't the ones that were like showing up at temple and worshiping Yahweh and singing praise to him and offering large sums of money to worship. These were the marginalized. These are the people that everybody had written off. We talked about this months ago that really even Jesus' own disciples, you know, they were fishermen, which basically means that these guys had already started their vocation, which means that no rabbi wanted them to be their disciples. That's what people would do, first century Judaism. You would either go follow a rabbi and become kind of a disciple of that rabbi, or if you weren't good enough, you would then go follow your dad's vocational business. Well, where are Peter, James, and John? Andrew? Fishing. They didn't make the cut. Nobody wanted them. Jesus did, though. And he calls them to himself. Jesus has this whole band of crazy, dysfunctional people all around him, totally messed up, which basically means this, that when God's people gather together, you should expect a lot of dysfunctionality. You should expect that. You should expect a lot of sin. I mean, I don't know where this whole idea came from, this whole notion of, like, the church, we've got to be like this perfect pearl, like everybody act nice and clean and good. We want to be that because God's given us new hearts. We desire that. We strive for that. We want to be holy. But the reality is we're stuck here with our feet in the mud, right? Even though our heart's desiring to be like God, we want to be transformed. We want to change. When we sin, we don't want to sin anymore. But the reality is, is that we still sin. I said this before, that the church really at the end of the day is a bunch of redeemed sinners. It's the only thing that separates it from the world. The world is sinners. The church is redeemed sinners. We still sin. We still step on each other's toes. Some of you haven't figured this out. It's one of the reasons why some people jump from church to church all the time. They're looking for that perfect, perfect spot. They're looking for that perfect place where nobody offends them. Look, let me just put it this way. If you find that place, the moment you show up, it'll become imperfect, all right? Did he just put me down? Yes, I did. Take yourself more lightly. You are not as great as you think you are. Like, he doesn't take me seriously. I don't take you seriously. I don't take myself very seriously. I take God very seriously. I take the church 
very seriously. I take his word very seriously. I don't take myself and God's people that seriously. We are redeemed sinners. We are works in process, in progress. God's changing us. So expect when people get together that are sinners, that are redeemed, to have conflict, to have differing opinions, to have things that just don't, you don't get along with the other person, to have areas in each other's lives where you just don't see eye to eye, that's okay. If all you have is a bunch of people that see constantly eye to eye, think the same way, act the same way, you have a cult. Right? And not a church. You have a cult. You should freak out if you're in that place where everybody wears the same matching sweatshirts, everybody combs their hair the same way, and has the same colloquialisms, and says the same things, and uses the same translation of the Bible, and has all the same uniform beliefs across the board on every little essential doctrine, and most importantly in these situations, non-essential doctrines. You're probably in a cult. But if you're in a church, expect for there to be differences of opinions. Expect for there to be all sorts of butting of heads. Expect for there to be sin that's being worked through and dealt with. Expect for there to be messiness. But expect for there to be a desire to see Jesus continue to change us and shape us. Because at the center of every church, it's Jesus' church, should be this exaltation of Him as Lord, whereby we run to Him. So when we sin, we run to Him. When we need to confess, we run to him and confess. Jesus is the center of it all. He's the family head. The last thing is this, is that it also means that participation really is not optional. It's not optional. Let me give you an example and finish with this. I'll show you the next picture. Next slide. All right. Trying to keep with my little uh, imagery and pictures here for little kids. I think we have a ton of them in here, but uh, hopefully you'll like it. All right, this is basically the difference between a family meal and going out to eat. And the reality is, is I want to use this as the point to demonstrate what I mean, is that participation is not optional. So, for example, if you are at a restaurant, you have the tendency, the propensity to complain and make fun of, to be upset, to criticize, to critique, to be up, you know, to look for some sort of card to complain about the fact that the fries weren't warm or, you know, whatever, too salty, the meat was undercooked, all sorts of things. You can complain because you are there to be served. You'll pay a price. You'll give a tip or you'll withhold a tip. Or if you're lame, you will withhold a tip and give a tract. The point that I would make is this. Is yes, you just got that. The point that I would make is this, is that the difference between going out to eat at a restaurant and a family dinner is that a family dinner, everybody works for himself as a family. In other words, you're sitting down and you're like, Mom, tater tots, cold. Mom, if she's smart, says, get up and warm them up. The microwave's right there. Put them in for a minute. It's all good. Dad, where's the ketchup? It's in the fridge. Go get it. Everybody works. If something's not right, you participate, you help, you serve, you care, you take care of, you look after each other. It's not optional. The problem is oftentimes so many of us in this consumeristic type culture in which we live in, we view church as a restaurant. We come to it, we critique it, we sample it, we taste it, the sermon's good. We're like, oh, that was a great sermon. That was really good. I'll give it to my friends. If it was bad, I'll complain about it. Send a nasty email. 
Be frustrated about it. Write a blog post about it. Do something about it. If the temperature's not right, if there's no coffee, I'll complain. I'll ask for some sort of a comment card so I can complain to somebody else higher to make certain that they are there to serve me. But if you're in a family, and you're like, there's no coffee here. I wonder if they need somebody to help coffee. Be happy to help at making coffee. I wonder what they need to fund the gospel. Maybe they need some help. I got some money. Be happy to help fund the gospel. Maybe they have some needs on Sunday morning. I'm happy to help out. They got a community group. They have some needs in community group. Maybe they need some mentors or people to help serve in children's ministry. I don't know. And I was walking down the hallway. I saw some kind of scuffs on the ground. Rather than complaining, being like, this is ridiculous. There's a scuff on the ground. How dare they? This is a church. It should be clean. Family member says, should say, hey, notice there's a scuff mark. Can I, can I clean that up? Can I come in on one of the weekdays and help out, be part of that team? So let me ask you this. Are you part of the family? Or, or are you just a critic? Are you part of the family? Do you love Jesus? Do you hear him? Do you hear what he says to you? Do you do what he says? Are you brought into his family under his headship? Under his authority? Have you embraced the fact that you're part of a group of people that are very dysfunctional? You don't get to choose them. But you do get to love him. You say, it's hard for me to love him. You do get to grow in grace to love him. Because God gifts you with more grace to love even the more difficult ones to love. When it happens, you end up becoming more like Jesus. Isn't that what you want? If you're his, if you belong to him, you'll begin to look like him. That's what a family is. At the end of the day, family members at some point begin to reflect the image of their dad. And so the point that I would make is this, is how you hear is everything. How you perceive is everything. Are you doing what you hear, what you perceive? Your identity will determine how you hear and how you do. Are you part of God's family? If you are, one of the clearest, most well-known ways in which you're going to demonstrate that you're part of the family is really about what you're doing. So I want to finish with this. What are you doing in this family? If this is your family. If this isn't your church family, if you're just kind of here checking things out, we're happy you're here. Glad you're here. My encouragement would be for you to find a church, land there, serve it. If it's not here, great. There's lots of other great churches on the Central Coast. But find a body. Find a family. Love that family. Serve that family. Be a part of that family. Get involved in that family. Donate. Give your money to that family. Give your time to that family. Give your energy to that family. If there's things that are not being done that you have been given special insight to see that something here is not being done or something here could be done a little bit better, there's a little area that I notice is not being done properly. If that's you, if you've noticed that, and this is your family, family looks at that and says, how can I be a part of that? I'm going to be a part of the solution. Critics connoisseurs, people that just simply view it as a restaurant, they come, they criticize, they use, they abuse, they never give back, they never participate, they never engage. Family engages. Family participates. Family gives back. Family loves. Because that's what God does. At the end of the day, that's what God does. He's a giver. He's a sacrificer. And he sacrificed everything for us. 
so that we would be brought in the family. I'm going to finish. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, partake of communion. What communion speaks to us of, it speaks to us of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That his body was broken, his blood was spilled and shed for us so that we who were outside of the family could be washed and cleansed and redeemed and brought into the family. Be changed and transformed. For some of you, it may mean you need to repent. You may need to repent from sin. For some of you, you're not in that family. You may have thought that you were in that family, but then you begin to realize maybe you're not in that family. For some of you, it's a matter of perhaps asking God to wash you and cleanse you, to receive you and accept you. And the beautiful thing is I believe that just like God says, he won't cast anybody out who call upon him. So I'm gonna, we're going to sing. I'm not going to sing for you. Uh, you don't want me to sing for you. We're going to sing, and uh, we'll partake of communion and worship. And I'm going to pray. And uh, you know what I want to do? I want to, I want to just, I'm going to pray over all you guys. Here's what I want to do. I want to have all you guys kind of stand up. And, uh, yeah, come on up, Mike. I want to pray for you guys. And uh, Mike's going to lead us in some songs of worship. And if you want to sit down when, when we start worshiping, that's fine. Um, but I just want to pray for you guys. Because some of you, I think, are family. You're believers. Jesus has washed you, cleansed you. You're a work in progress, just like the rest of us. Some of you may not be Christians yet. But I want to pray for those of you. It's kind of a new year. One of the beautiful things about a new year is... Um, you know, there's nothing special and necessarily sacred about a new year, but other than the fact that there's something about new things we really love, right? We love new gadgets, new gears, new updates, new upgrades, new years, new life. We love all that stuff. And uh, I view it as an opportunity that we can use to, to seize that, to take advantage of that to God's glory. So I want to pray for you guys, that God would just give you a fresh vision in this new year as to how you can be a part of this family. This is your family. This is your church. This is the church body that you would say, I belong to Calvary Hill. It's my family. I want to pray that God would give you very tangible, very specific ways for you to be involved. Ways that you can give more. Ways that you can serve more. Ways that you can be more involved and more active in this body. I know we always say we got a lot of time that we don't have. But it's amazing. When you really fall in love with something or something radically captures your heart, it's amazing how much time just comes out of nowhere or that we're able to make when we find something of great value. That's what I pray that you see, that the church, as dysfunctional as it is, is very valuable for this one reason. It's because it belongs to Jesus. So, God, right now I want to pray for each of my family members here. Pray, God, that you would just open their eyes and help them to see. Thank you, God, for great grace that you love us. There's no condemnation that you uh, place upon us. And, God, if anything I said in any way uh, felt, tasted as any form of condemnation, then, God, I pray that you'd forgive me, wash me, cleanse me. And cause those words to pass. And God, I pray that all things would be filtered through the lens of your scripture, your word. And that, God, we would see that your desire for us is to be part of the family. To serve, to love. Not out of duty, out of great delight. Not out of guilt, but out of great joy. God, I pray for revelation to be given to people here today that you would show them specific ways that maybe they can be involved, maybe ways that they can serve, maybe ways that they can start giving of their talents and of their gifts, of their finances, of their time, of their energy towards the mission of the gospel. Because, Lord, that's what we want to be about. We want to be about the gospel going forth, changing people's lives. 
training people for the gospel, seeing people baptized, transformed. So God, I just pray that you would begin to shape, mold, and put burdens upon our hearts as to how and the way that you would want us to live. For anybody here, God, I also pray that maybe is not a Christian, that they don't know you, they haven't opened their eyes to see your beauty yet. God, I pray that you would open their eyes even today, that you would help them to see the beauty of Jesus and that they would trust in Jesus. God, that you would bring them into your family and that pre-existent family here, God, would be so quick and warm and welcoming to people that are brand new. So we just want to sing to you now. We want to worship you. We want to consider and remember what you did first on the cross before taking communion.